0: This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at Fidelity.com/slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSC S I P C
1: From the Newsroom of the Washington Post.
0: Washington
1: Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah.
2: Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post.
1: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, September 12th. Today, why some schools are integrating while others remain hopelessly segregated. A shift in who's
3: getting hired. And a major change to the asylum process. When I started covering national education issues, I was really interested in the question of school segregation and race in schools. Do you agree today? Do you agree today? that you were wrong to oppose bussing in America. Recently, the question of school segregation and bussing has gotten a lot of a lot of press due to the presidential conversation in the presidential race. Do you agree?
4: I did not oppose bussing in America. What I opposed is bussing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, I there was a oppose. failure
3: of, of states to, to integrate no, but, public schools in America. But this was actually a project that we began um, well before that. And we I was just sort of interested in knowing, how bad is it? Has it gotten worse? Has it gotten better? What does school segregation look like today? I'm Laura Meckler. I'm national education writer for The Washington Post. And how did you go about finding the answer to that? Well, so the first thing that we wanted to know is how many schools are actually racially diverse. I should say how many school districts are racially diverse. So the way that we do school assignment in this country is inside the boundary lines of a district. Now, those districts themselves are sometimes quite segregated. You can have a very wealthy white district right next to a a city, urban, mostly non-white district, and kids don't go across those lines most of the time. So the first question we had was, how many diverse school districts are there? How many places could do integration if they wanted to? So we went about measuring how that's changed. We looked at 1995, which is the first year for which there's national data available, and we looked at 2017, which is the most recent year. And the first really interesting thing that we found is that there are a lot more diverse districts than there used to be.
1: That this may be diversity that's not necessarily reflected in all schools, but that within the district, you're seeing that there are a a large population of
3: white and non-white students. Exactly. Well, then we looked at it and we said, okay, we have more diverse districts. Are they integrated? What are they doing with those kids? And the interesting thing we found out that in these newly diverse districts, mostly these are places that used to be all white in 1995 or almost all white and now have a substantial share of Latino students. That's your typical profile of this newly diverse district. And what we found is that they have fairly high levels of integration, far more integrated than their urban, big city counterparts that have been diverse for, for a long time, and those places are really still very segregated.
1: And so you went to see this difference in types of integration or non-integration at schools in
3: person. Where did you go? Decided to go to Colorado. Colorado is a place where you can see both of these trends in a big way. So the first place I went was a little area called the Roaring Fork Valley. This is outside of Aspen. These are small towns, a chain of three small towns that make up the Roaring Fork School District. And this is a place that in 1995 had about 11 percent of Latinos in their school system, and today it's more like 55 percent. So there's been a rapid increase in the number of Latinos living in the Roaring Fork Valley. That's mostly due to the fact that Aspen has been on a building boom. There are all sorts of immigrants who are moving in, people who are doing construction and landscaping and food service. And what we found, this is a typical example of this trend, which is that the school district is far more integrated than what you'd find in big cities. And, you know, in the case of Roaring Fork, it's a little bit of the fact that they don't have a place in town where the Latinos live on the east side and the white people live on the west side. The people tend to be mixed up in a way that you don't see in most big cities, and that helps to integrate the schools.
1: Because it's harder to draw lines between particular school boundaries that would exclude all Latino people or include only white people because the housing is so kind of mixed up that it ends up being much easier to make the schools more integrated.
3: Exactly. The other interesting thing about Roaring Fork, and I don't know that this is typical, is that the school district themselves care about this. They want integrated schools, and they've set about drawing the school boundaries in a way that will produce that, that will foster integration. So when they were making a decision about where to locate a new elementary school, they had a choice. They could have put it over in a high-growth area, which was mostly Latino on the other side of the Colorado River, but they feared if they did that, it would quickly become an all-Latino school. So instead, they put it on the other side of town, where it would draw a more diverse crop of students. And I think that that kind of sort of intentional thinking about how to do things also was a big part of the equation there. So that's Roaring Fork Valley.
1: But then you also visited some schools in Denver proper.
3: What was that like? So I got in my rental car and drove across the Continental Divide, through the tunnel and out the other side to Denver, where it's a very, very different story. Denver was under a court order for many years. They had court-mandated busing, which did succeed in integrating the schools. Then that court order was lifted, as it was in most places. And the school's almost immediately resegregated. The school board was faced with a choice once this court order was lifted. Where should how should we draw the lines? And at that point, people in Denver were like sick of bussing. They had no tolerance for it. People blamed bussing for the white flight that had happened out of the city and they just wanted neighborhood schools. Everybody wanted neighborhood schools. And that's what they drew. Neighborhood schools. One of the things we talk about in the story is there are two high schools. One's called East it's the one all the white people want to go to. It's the best type, quote unquote, best high school in the city. And then there's one called Manual, which is a historically black high school. They have their enrollment has dwindled to about 300 total students. They're at risk of losing their autonomy. They could be taken over by the state if their test scores don't improve. And the, they could have drawn those lines in a way that would have made both schools balanced. But instead, they drew this weird U-shape around Manual to pull in some wealthy white neighborhoods into the east boundary. So they were very consciously kind of bringing segregation back.
1: And what do the parents in Denver proper say about the fact that their schools are so segregated when just in the next district over, things have gotten a lot better and and that it isn't so segregated?
3: In Denver, they say they're working on it. That's the first thing they'll say is that they have had a commission and they have some ideas. But they, a lot of the Denver system is very much driven by choice, which is a buzzword in education today. Schools, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering, personally as a parent, whether this is something that you've thought about at all, or if it concerns you with um, that the school is mostly white. Absolutely. Yeah. One morning in Denver, I went over to one of the whiter schools in the city, a very um, you know, beautiful, affluent neighborhood, and talked to parents as they were dropping off their kids. I have a sixth grader at McAuliffe. So okay. he started
2: here in third grade. This is our neighborhood school. Yeah. That year, when we were in third grade, this, this sixth grade class was the last class that you could freely choice into
3: this building. And a lot of the parents, a lot of them are quite liberal and they say, yeah, I know that this is the situation and it isn't equal. I realize it, but I just really want my kid to be able to go walk to school. I really, this community is important to me. I mean, everybody has, has their reasons.
2: Elementary school shouldn't be that way. You should be able to get up and walk your kid to school. He just did. He walked our kid to school. That said, there is very little racial diversity in our building. We are having a international festival this week. It's in the library right now, um, if that's something you're interested in, as a way to kind of bring more diversity into the building, even if it's just at an educational level. Mm-hmm. Our school, we did an um, auction in February. We did a paddle raise for the three other schools in the in the neighborhood, the three other elementary schools. We raised $6,000. Okay. We brought $2,000 checks to each of those schools and it made principals cry.
3: How much did you raise for Park Hill at the auction? (laughs)
2: $165,000 and change. Yeah. And by giving that money to the building, we have paras in almost every classroom. You have what, paraprofessionals? Paraprofessionals in almost
3: every classroom. Wow, it's enough to fund staff positions.
2: Because we raise so much money and we give so much directly to the building, we have more staff. We have better test scores. We have higher achieving children because there's a concentrated staff. That's not fair. I'll admit it, that's not fair. And I don't know that anyone you talk to is gonna say, there's an easy fix for this. I don't know what the fix
3: is. Well, I mean, an enrollment zone would be a fix. You would spread the wealthy parents out among the schools that are not that far from each other. Yes. Um,
2: But the kids couldn't walk to school in the morning. And so do you lose your sense of community and then your sense of responsibility?
1: So when you think about the difference between these school districts and and the difference between the level of segregation there, what do you think the takeaway is for why that difference exists? Like, is it suburban versus urban schools? Is it populations where people are historically living in different places versus a, a, a community where you have a lot of newer arrivals? Or do you think that this is something about the fact that you're looking at segregation between black kids and white kids or Latino kids and white kids?
3: I think it's a little bit of a lot of those things. One thing that researchers will tell you is that there is more prejudice against African-American kids than there is against Latino kids, that white people, for some reason, are more comfortable with it when it's Latino kids. Part of it also is that in a lot of these communities— White people are still the majority. That's not the case in Roaring Fork, but in a lot of places it is. And it's easier to accept integration when you're still in the majority than it is. When you're not sending your white
1: kid to a primarily
3: black school. Exactly. It's like that's scary for some people, whereas, you know, okay, I've got my school, and instead of it being 90 percent white, now it's 60 percent white, but it still feels like my school you know, that's a little easier for people. Another possible reason is at the time that Latinos were diversifying these communities, these smaller places, they were doing it at a time when there was no legalized segregation in place. There was not redlining. When most cities were developed, I mean, African-Americans didn't choose to all live in the same place. They were forced to live in the same place. There were, it was federal policy that legally segregated the races and policy of banks that would not lend. It wouldn't give people mortgages in an integrated neighborhood because it was, quote, too risky. But that's not the case now. You have people moving in at a time when you don't have these legal impediments. We still have other problems in this country, to be sure, but we don't have that one. So I think that that also might make it a little bit easier as well.
1: That's what I find really interesting about your reporting on this, is that in some ways it seems kind of hopeful that there are some districts where you are seeing more integration, more people of color who are going to school with with white people, and that Things are on an upswing. But then you have these other school districts where that's not the case. And it seems like part of the reason for that is just like the history of the place, the history of segregation there, the history of of redlining. And in some ways, it feels very unhopeful that in some of these urban communities, the housing patterns are so entrenched and the school segregation is so entrenched that there really doesn't seem
3: like a way to... Fix it. It's a lot harder to fix it once you've got a problem than to try to make it work from the start. I mean, there's no question about that. There are places in this country that are trying. There are districts that are tackling this. Not as many as there are places that are ignoring it. And so there is plenty of reason for despondency, truthfully. I I mean, I don't want to say otherwise. I think your your point was really good, the idea that, you know, is this a good news story or a bad news story? And because we don't want to be Pollyannish about this. You know, we don't want to be thinking that, you know, oh, isn't this such a great story? And we, hey, all you people who are worried about segregation, don't worry about that. We got that so- solved. That's not true. We still have a big school segregation problem in major metropolitan areas, in historically diverse areas. And, and you know, nobody can look at our data and say anything to the contrary. But to me as a reporter, the reason why I find these newly diverse districts really interesting is because this is something we don't know as much about. The number of kids living in highly integrated districts went up from 5.9 million up to 10.9. 8 million. So that was a, almost a doubling of the number living in integrated communities. So what we are finding in a way that a story that isn't been told as much, I think, is that there are people all across this country in smaller communities outside of the major metropolitan areas who are experiencing integration in a way that hasn't really been true before in this country.
1: Laura, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Laura Meckler is a national education reporter for The Post. You can check out an exhaustive analysis of the nation's diverse schools and see how integrated your own school district is at postreports.com. My name is Suryana Rodriguez. I am
0: 19 years old, and I currently work at IBM Poughkeepsie as a lab technician.
1: Suryana has been working at IBM for a while, as an intern and then as an apprentice. But just recently, she was offered a full-time job. Joining this forum was very important to my family and I because my mom brought me here so that I can be more than what she ever was and could be. No one in my family had ever gone to college. I wanted to be the first in my family, and I
0: wanted my mom's dream to come true, and I wanted to be more than I ever could if I was just working at a restaurant or if I was working at a factory. And so joining this program opened many doors for me.
5: For the first time, probably in U.S. history, but certainly in modern U.S. history, since we have data, people of color are the majority of new hires in the country.
1: Suriana is part of this trend that economics reporter Heather Long started noticing a few months ago when she was digging into jobs numbers.
5: So non-white people are getting hired at a faster rate basically right now than, than whites
1: are. Well, so let me ask this. This rise in people of color and especially women of color entering the workforce, is that more than just demographically the fact that younger Americans are now more diverse than older Americans?
5: Yes. It's a a bit of two things. Part of the trend is just what you're saying. It's the demographics that we've all been talking about in the United States, where we have baby boomers who are mainly white, who are retiring and exiting the workforce. And we have this huge surge of younger people coming in, who is the most diverse generation that we've seen in in the United States. And also more and more people of color, especially Hispanics, are are graduating from high school and entering college and getting different types of certifications and associate's degrees and, and... bachelor's degrees. And so they are becoming an incredibly attractive workforce on a lot of levels to employers right now. And the other part of the trend is a little bit more cynical. And that's, I think we have to be realistic in this country and that there are prejudices uh, in hiring decisions. And what we're seeing, and you can see it pretty clearly in the data, is that, as you might expect, people with college degrees got were some of the first to get hired after in the recovery from the Great Recession. But there were also mainly whites and particularly white women who fared better earlier on. And now we're seeing the moment when it's really the time for uh, Hispanic and African-American women to get
1: their chance. So it took this long for... Black and Hispanic women to basically see the benefits of a recovering economy long after a lot of white people started seeing it.
5: Yes, I think you're absolutely right.
1: You also talked about some of the cultural shifts that might have to do with what's going on here.
5: That's right. Economists immediately look at this data and say, oh, it's just another sign of the hot labor market. And of course, with unemployment so low, we're getting more and more people are, are getting hired and getting these opportunities. But of course, when you actually go out across the country and you talk to people on the ground, the situation can look very different. And what we kept hearing over and over again, particularly with Hispanic women, is that there's been this massive cultural and educational shift where I, I think almost every person out of of the 30 people on the ground we, we spoke to, I'd say like 29 said to us. Hispanic women of this generation are being encouraged to get out in the workforce. For instance, Monica Hernandez, who's opens our piece, while her mom did work and have a job, you know, she initially wanted to stay home after the birth of her child. And her husband, who's from Honduras, was like, yes, definitely, you know, I'll support you. You can stay home whenever you want. And then when Monica came to him at New Year's Eve this year and said, you know, I really want to get back into the workforce. That's my goal for 2019. He was really a little bit surprised. Surprised, He was like, really? Are you sure you want to do this? You know, I can still support you. And, you know, she is just part of this new generation that feels like I, I want to use my skills. I want to get back out there. And I want to show really, she kept saying, I want to show my son what's possible.
1: But you've also reported that some experts believe that this cultural shift might also be a response to immigration patterns and the fact that Latino men are often those most targeted for deportation and that women are kind of the ones left behind having to figure out how to provide for their families.
5: That's right. Particularly in when we spoke to people in Texas, in the Houston area, they brought up the immigration concerns. They were seeing more women coming to their job training programs, for the, particularly for their healthcare job training program, because they were either single moms or they were their partner or their husband or their boyfriend had been deported. And for the past several years, the ICE, the Immigration Service arrests, I was stunned by the statistic, 90 percent are men. And so those people are
1: 90% of people who are deported.
5: 90% of people who are arrested by ICE. So we don't exactly know the deportation statistics, but obviously, if the arrests are that skewed to male, it's likely that deportations
1: are as well. So, for these women who are getting a foothold in the economy finally, what kinds of industries do they tend to be finding work in?
5: It's mainly the service sector. And that's one of the main reasons that women overall have done so well in this recovery is, as we keep talking about manufacturing, those blue collar, those muscle jobs have declined in the, in the economy. And instead, we've seen the rise of the service sector, particularly health care. You see a lot of also child care. And what's been interesting in the Hispanic community is a number of women we spoke with, they were maybe having informal jobs. So they might have taken care almost like a nanny role or a home cleaner role that may have been an unofficial, more informal job. And now they are transitioning to the formal workforce in order to get benefits, in order to be on a payroll and sort of get more credit and have more
1: documentation for what they're doing. So this obviously seems like a very good news story, but... You and I have had a lot of conversations about the fact that there are concerns that there could be a recession on the horizon. And I wonder how people like Monica Hernandez are going to fare if that happens.
5: That's a huge concern right now. Uh, I mean, a recession is going to hurt a lot of people, but it particularly tends to hurt people who maybe just got into the workforce. It's just sort of that old mantra of last in, first out. You're always concerned that you haven't had enough time to prove to your boss what you can do, and you haven't had enough time to really learn the skills and a job that you need to to get those protections and kind of secure your role.
1: And so... Or, or that there is a sense that Black and Hispanic women are more expendable when it comes to who employers would get rid of first.
5: I think that's probably some truth to that, too. You know, we kind of try to illustrate some different, we, we show three different cases in our story, and I would say the most secure, the last woman we profile is a young woman who's 19 named Suriana, who just got offered a full-time job at IBM after being an intern there and then an apprentice, and she's kind of well on her way, I would say, uh, to securing a job that's, that's pretty lucrative in the IT field in upstate New York. Uh, Monica Hernandez seems like she's doing well. She does, did manage to earn that. At CNA the certified nursing aide and she was just offered a full-time job at the medical practice that she's working at but I think it's a lot more tenuous for uh, Milagros who's in Manassas Virginia she you know is right now is working two part-time jobs and again part-time a little bit easier to maybe cut if a downturn hits and it's interesting her boss is a huge champion of hers and is also an immigrant and she's been telling Milagros look you need to get more qualifications. You need to take advantage of different programs that the state of Virginia offers to help uh, child care workers and to help educators earn more credits. So I think it's a really good sign for her that she's she's got the right boss to try to help her along the way.
1: So it sounds like for these women, what they represent is the fact that even though this group and particularly Hispanic women are making gains in the economy that they're still the most vulnerable in terms of losing their their foothold in the economy.
5: You never know until the downturn hits, but historically, I think there's a good bit of evidence that suggests that minorities and minority women would be pretty vulnerable in a recession. I think it also depends what your job is. Healthcare roles tend to hold up better during recessions, so people going into those fields probably do have a better toehold right now. But other industries, for instance, obviously in the last recession, construction was really hard hit because of the housing bust that happened. We don't know what industry is going to be hardest hit this time. I wish we did. I do worry sometimes the last, obviously during the Great Recession, a lot of communities cut back on school funding. And so a lot of those educator positions that have long been seen as so stable and reliable turned out not to be. So we'll see. Uh, And that's, I do, I worry that some of these workers who are finally getting in may not, may be in an industry that could be particularly hard hit.
1: Heather Long is an economics reporter for The Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC. And brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And now, one more thing.
4: This is the first time we've seen such a dramatic departure from that kind of procedure, in which someone who shows up at the border and says that they're fleeing persecution or harm would then be rejected and deported back to their home country because, for example, they didn't apply for asylum in Mexico on the way to the United States. I'm Nick Miroff. I cover the Department of Homeland Security and Immigration Enforcement for The Washington Post. The Trump administration's policy change in July was known as an interim final rule. And what it does is it says that if you transited another country en route to the U.S. border— then you are ineligible to seek asylum in the United States unless you've been denied by another nation. And so what that does is essentially block that path to large numbers of, in particular, Central American uh, families that have been arriving in, in record numbers over the past year. So the ACLU and immigrant advocate groups sued immediately in a California district court and secured an injunction saying that it was a violation of federal procedures. And that injunction was then challenged by the government. So on Wednesday, the Supreme Court said that the government can, in fact, go forward with this policy and apply the asylum ban while it is litigated in the lower courts. It's unclear whether they have endorsed the Trump administration's view of its legal authority to do something like this, or they're really just pushing back at the idea that a district court judge could apply a nationwide injunction that would affect the policy across the entire border. Over the past 18 months or so, we've seen record numbers of families coming across the border and claiming fear once they're in U.S. custody, typically the first step toward seeking asylum. Asylum claims in U.S. federal courts and U.S. immigration courts have increased at least fourfold over the past five years. So we've really seen a big jump in asylum claims and applications, particularly from people leaving Central America's Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. That said, there are also large numbers of Cubans, Nicaraguans, Venezuelans, and others who are are showing up at the U.S.-Mexico border, also trying to get access to the U.S. immigration system through the asylum process. This is such a radical departure from existing practice because the Immigration and Nationality Act for decades has made fairly explicit that if you show up on U.S. soil, you have the right to access the U.S legal system you you have basically due process rights and the government should hear your claims and avoid sending you back to a country or a situation where you're going to be harmed or persecuted these are long standing american principles that were enshrined into law and international principles that were enshrined into law around the world in the wake of the Holocaust and World War II, And so what it means in the medium and short term is that the government can go forward with this policy and that 10s of 1000s of people who were who are likely en route to the US border right now, planning to make a claim like this, are going to be either deported back to their home countries, or stuck in in Mexico, and that that may, at least in the short term, lead to a new backup at the border.
1: Nick Miroff covers the Department of Homeland Security and immigration for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. On the next episode of Post Reports, we're going to break down the third Democratic presidential debate, the first time that Senator Elizabeth Warren and former Vice President Joe Biden will be on a debate stage together. Until then, I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.
0: What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit Fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.